The book of Acts in the New Testament um, turns to the 14th chapter. We're going to read a few verses together, starting in verse 19 through 28. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. Um, if you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the center aisles of seats, there are stacks of Bibles underneath every seat. And so if you don't have one, you can yell down to the person uh, in the center aisle and have them pass you one. Um, not only can you use this Bible during the service, we would love it for you to take this with you as a gift from us to you. So feel free to do that. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. We're going to read this out loud. Uh, you can read along. Uh, if you're going to use the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 600. And uh, once I think everybody's got it, we'll go ahead and read together. Starting at verse 19, here we go. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed themselves to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we are excited for the new year. We gather for, uh, grateful for the gathering of your church today. And even as we assemble today, Lord, we uh, pray that you would meet us here. God, that you would open our eyes afresh today to your word, God, that we would be sensitive to your spirit speaking to us, and Lord, that you would allow our ears to hear something in this passage that maybe we haven't seen or have not heard. Lord, we thank you for churches like ours who are meeting around Kingstown and in Alexandria that are sitting down, worshiping, um, it's just extolling Jesus, unfolding his gospel, making it known to those who've never heard it, Lord God, and um, just making a way for people to come to faith. God, we pray that under the hearing of your word, Lord, people would be convicted of hearts and that you would bring us to faith and repentance. Not just those who have never done that, but even us, Lord, who've believed for a long time. God, bring us to faith and repentance. God, today, um, we just, uh, we look forward to a new year with anticipation. We thank you that we have breath in our lungs, that we're among the living God, make us people who are passionate for you. God, make us people who are passionate for your gospel. Make us people who are passionate to be a part of your church and do something great with us and in us this year. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. So happy new year again. You know, this, uh, this phenomenon that goes across the world every time there's a new year, and you all know what that phenomenon is because many of you participate in this activity, in this, the, the thing called making resolutions. Anybody do that? Sure you do. 
Um, the beginning of every year, it, it's almost like, you know, school starts and you start thinking about, you know, summer's ended. I got to get my act together. But this, this new year always brings with it an opportunity for us to reflect on the past. Some of you got to re- forget about it because I like, oh, I did that. Don't want to remember that. But then you get to, to almost start anew. Life doesn't start anew, but it's almost as if we get a, a fresh breath of air to look and change the direction of our lives. And that's why I love the new year. Perhaps you make resolutions. Um, I Google. You know, you can, do, you can find anything on Google. And so I just Google um, New Year's resolutions. What are the popular ones? And it, it turns out that New Year's resolutions, that people make them, I mean, everyone, lots of people make them. And you can categorize them into like three or four different subsets of stuff. The first one is, is I mean, you, you're gonna, you already know it. It's, it's lose weight, eat right, get fit. Um, it's those kinds of things. And as Americans, we definitely need that. I probably gained three or four pounds before the holidays. And then during the holidays, I gained a few more. So I don't know if this was associated with my weight gain, but my family got me a Christmas. I got the, uh, the X3, P90 X3. And so I don't know what they were saying by giving me that as a gift, but, um, I'm going to use it, and it's going to be my New Year's resolution. I've already done like five days of it. Can't you tell? <laughs> don't, don't answer. I'll get offended. And so this, this next subset falls in this area of, of debt management, getting my money right, saving, or a subset of that, getting more education or getting a better job so that I can get my money right. And then you have this third subset of resolutions that people make that are, are kind of like getting my priorities in life right. Spending more time with my family and friends, those people that really matter in my life. Um, learning more, uh, getting organized. And this is probably my all-time favorite, this one right here, get more sleep. Every year I say I'm going to get more sleep. I say I'm going to go to bed earlier so I can get up earlier, you know, start my day, get all those things done that I'm supposed to get done. It just never happens. So... This is the thing about resolutions. They aren't bad. It's not bad that we make them. But unfortunately, oftentimes when we make them, we don't keep them. So it's it's January 5th. And if any of you all have, you know, set goals or made resolutions along the lines of those that Google would say are the most popular um, in the world. I mean, how are you doing? Five days in, you're still on track. You're going to give up tomorrow. Um, Believe it or not, I've said this before, our church is eight months old. And I think very much like an individual, uh, a family, an organization can set goals, can make resolutions, reflecting on the past and sort of um, looking forward to how, they, how you want life to be as you move forward uh, in the new year, that like families and individuals and organizations do that, that we as the church should, we have the opportunity also to, uh, to be resolved about a few things. Um, just as a frame of reference, uh, let me define resolution. A resolution is a firm decision to do or not do something. And this word has, um, has appeared in Scripture. So a few uh, verses here to show you how the Bible uses the term. Daniel, 1, uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You guys know Daniel's story. He was uh, an Israelite, Hebrew, 
um, serving the king of Israel. He was taken into captivity, and in captivity, he was going to actually serve the king of Babylon. He was put into this special group of, of young men who were going to be trained, um, learn the language, and, and serve the king. And they were going to be given the best, best education, choices, food, all these things. And Daniel said, I don't want that. I can do what you're asking me to do, but I'll do it my way. And he, would, he withheld from the, the luxury of the life that he would have been uh, afforded. And he said, I'll, I'll just eat the food that I can eat under my own custom. And God blessed him through that. God blessed his resolve. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. We read this verse during at our Advent celebration. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, the last verse would be 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So much like Paul was praying um, for the church at Thessalonica, that they would be resolved in every good work, that all the things that they would do in their worship of of Jesus, that they would be resolved to do it. They, I mean, we should ask ourselves, much like Paul praying for the Thessalonians, um, what, can we pa- what can we be passionate about? What can we do as a church um, that would lend to our worship of God? I think the, the ultimate question for us, Transit Church for 2014, is simply this. How do we establish ourselves as a church that endures? How do we as a church make an impact? And that's the question that I hear the Spirit of God asking me as we, um, you know, eight months old, going to celebrate a birthday in April. It's going to be a fun one. And get ready for this, this coming year. How do we establish ourselves as a church that endures? How do we establish ourselves so that we have long-term impact to shape the culture? That's a loaded question. It's a loaded question that we can't even touch the, the tip of without looking a little bit into, into history. We have to look at the 2,000-year the history of the church starting with, with the Pentecost, the very first Pentecost, the unfolding of, of the church through the, the original disciples and the apostles. We have to go through the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin. We have to look at the development of Christianity in Europe how Europe then became uh, a post-Christian nation. We have to look at the, the birth of Christianity in our own country, in the United States. We have to look at the history of the liberalism of Christianity and how liberalism turned into fundamentalism and how fundamentalism over time has unfolded into a whole bunch of stuff. We have to look at the fact that most of the things that we experience in the church today are a reaction to what we don't like about either what we're practicing in the church or what we see in the culture. And I would tell you, you're looking at me and saying, I don't want to talk about that. And that's cool, but I don't, I don't want to preach about that either. But I do think we have to ask this, um, at least um, think about the crisis of the church of our day. And the crisis of the church of our day is simply this. It's the crisis of the nuns. Not nuns as in those people who wear the hobbits and the dresses and live in convents in the Catholic church, but nuns as in people who do not affiliate with church at all. And they are all around us. They're all around the country. They're particularly here in the Northeast. And we have a great subset of them here in D.C. Metro. There are 
Surprisingly, only about 3 to 5% of the people in this area, 5.6 million people, 3 to 5% of the people go to church. It's incredible. Where's everybody at? They're, they're busy. They're sleeping. They're having fun. They're doing what they do to make life work for them. I, I really believe we don't live. D.C. is kind of liberal. It, it absolutely is. But this is not an anti-God society. It's just a society where people do not prioritize their lives. They don't prioritize God above the level of their life. They prioritize. I mean, it's me first, then all the things I got to take care of. And then if I get time, I'll think about God. And, and that's your three to five percent. And so if we're if we're to have impact, we first have to understand the culture that we're living in. And I think there's two imperatives. First, the first imperative is we have to understand the culture that we're living in to be able to have an impact. Now, I I, I did a series last fall called Remission. I'm not going to preach all that, but I'd like to just draw out for you five implications, um, five assumptions, really, in regards to understanding the culture that we live in so that we can have an impact. The first assumption, and these aren't going to be on the screen, the first assumption is, 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 is simply this. Culture is shaped by cities. Culture is shaped by cities. Here's a working definition of, of culture. Culture is what we believe, uh, our customs, our arts, you know, the, the music we listen to, the, the movies we go to eat, the kind of food that we might partake of. It's all the, the amalgamation of all these things. Culture, you can see it. You can touch it with your hands. You can also understand what it is by the values that we might put in a, in a document or put up on a wall in a plaque. But I would tell you, culture really is, it's all those unspoken things that we just, I mean, as Americans, there's certain things that in our culture that we live by, and they're not written or spoken about anywhere. We just, we're just brought up in it, and that really is culture. And so culture is shaped by cities, big cities, and then it infiltrates into all the other small towns um, across America and even across the world. The second Assumption would simply be this. In order to change the culture, you got to be a part of the culture. You, you can't, we can't be a church on the corner, isolated off to ourselves, thinking what we think and wishing it on other people, expecting that to change them. In order to change a culture, you have to be a part of it. Thirdly, Christians must seek the welfare of the city. Um, and every time I think about this, this intrigues me because oftentimes, you know, the, the, the fundamentalist move in the United States in the church made us separate. And, and surely the Bible says that we're supposed to be in the world, not of it. So there's a separateness to our lives as Christians. But even as far back as the Old Testament, God was telling Israel as he was bringing them into captivity into Babylon because of Uh, Because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, he said, I'm going to give you to another nation. They're going to take all of your all of your things. They're going to take they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to put it in, put all the the tools of the temple in the the temples of their gods. And they're going to require you to serve them as slaves. But then he says these words in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not increase, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it is uh, for in its welfare. You'll find your welfare. Those words intrigue me 
Because Jeremiah is saying, I'm going to send you to a hard place. You're going to be slaves there. But in the midst of your slavery as, as a sojourner in exile in a hard place, I want you to pray for the people, the government, the, the, the existence of where you are. I want you to take their people and make them your people. I want you to take their food and make it your food. Exist in this because you will find your, the, the blessing of God and your welfare in being a part of the culture that I'm sending you into. And I would tell you that's, that really is his message for us today as well. The fourth assumption is that it, it just speaks to the sovereignty of God. We aren't where we are in the church by accident. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Acts 17, 26. It says, from God, made to, God took from one, he made from one man all the nations of the earth. He took, basically, he, he made from Adam all the nations of the earth. And then he set boundaries and times that all of these people and nations would live that we would find our way to him because we're not far him, far from him. In him we live and move and have our being. What's he saying by that? He's saying that God is in charge, that even in your decisions, God is superintending over them and helping you to carry out his purposes and his will. And, and a part of you making a decision to be right here in D.C. Metro um, is a part of God's will for you. And I, I'm comforted by that. I mean, you might you might. You might resist that and say, well, I, I don't want God ruling my life like that. But th- that is the God that we serve. He offers you the, the opportunity to agree with him. And I would tell you, even in your decisions, even in your undecisions, he is helping you to fulfill his purposes in your life and in the world. Fifthly, um, this brings us to the importance of the church. The, the last assumption is the importance of the church. The church is the ordained organi- organism organism whereby God would bring about his kingdom. The church is God's tool that he would he would um, take individuals and churches and a message, a message of good news and infiltrate the culture to change it, really to to, to subverse it. That's God's plan. So the first implication is simply this. In order for us to shape the culture, impact the culture, we have to know where to, we have to know about it. The second implication is is just as simple as the first, and it's this: we got to do something about it. We got to be resolved about it, and that leads us to our text today. Um, we could read these, you know, the, the Book of Acts is uh, the the record of the history of the early church, and so this passage that we read was Paul on his first missionary journey, okay? So you guys know about Paul. You can read about his life starting in Acts chapter 9 of how he was a a Pharisee, a very religious man, a zealot, just eager for the things of of God from a a fundamental perspective. And God got his attention. He was going to Damascus to uh, persecute Christians. He didn't like Christians who believed in Jesus. And um, he met Jesus on the way. Jesus came as a bright light, struck him down, basically said, Paul, you're persecuting me. Stop doing that. And I'm going to use you to uh, build my church. And then from that, Paul uh, met some people, got told him some things, and he ends up being one of God's chief messengers to build the early church. And so the book of Acts really lays out much of Paul's efforts to, um, you know, by the power of God to create the early church, along with another uh, prominent ap- apostle Peter. So in 
Acts chapter 14, um, what we're seeing here is Paul getting ready to go out and visit some cities. And Paul's method was this. God, um, God empowered him with his mentor of the time, Barnabas, to go, from, to go to the most prominent cities in all of Rome. And his, his mission from God was to go to the Jewish synagogue and to, to preach Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen as their Messiah, and demand that they follow him. And then, based upon the reception that the Jews had to the gospel, Paul would then turn to the Gentiles in that region. And so he's going to, uh, he, he does that from city after city, city after city. And there's some interesting things that happens here. Um, before this text, we find out that Paul is, he starts out in, in Antioch, the, the, uh, we were first called Christians in Antioch, that's what the Bible tells us. And in Antioch, Paul had a, a great, re, a, a moderate reception amongst the Jews, uh, a great reception amongst the Gentiles. So much so that the Jews were offended by Paul coming in and preaching Jesus and they chased him out of town. Then he went to Iconium. Iconium was a, a pretty much a, a Gentile prevalent, a, a non-Jew city. And the Jews, the, the Gentiles were happy to receive, uh, receive Paul. So much so, Paul comes in and he heals a man who, has been, who had been crippled for most of his life. The guy was about 40-something years old. Paul heals him. And, I mean, they, they are so mesmerized. These Jews, you know, the, the, the Gentiles, they, they worship gods, right? All kind of gods. And so they, they say, well, if he, if he can heal, he must be a god. And so they call Barnabas Zeus. They call Paul Hermes. And they, they start a parade. They're getting animals out. They're getting ready to sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul as gods. And Paul says, stop, don't do that. We're, men, we're, we're mere men just like you. And so um, interesting thing, the, the Jews that hated him from Antioch, they chased Paul all the way through Iconium into Lystra. And, that, and, and, and when he gets to Lystra, they stone him almost to death. They stone him unconscious. And I, th- I think if they had known he was only unconscious, they would have uh, kept stoning him. But in this instance, um, they thought he was dead and they left him there. So in Lystra is where we enter this text. And Paul's on the ground and his disciples just pick him up. Now, we could read this, this stuff. It's just the history of the early church. And it's some interesting stuff. What I want to extract from here are God's encouragement to us as a church. You know, Paul's a church planner. He went from, uh, from city to city to city to city, um, preaching the gospel, making disciples, uh, putting in leaders in the church and sort of mentoring them to, to be the church in that city. And that's really how the early church was formed. And I think we see in this as a church plant ourselves um, some instruction from Paul and from the, the Holy Spirit of God in for, uh, 2014. What I want you to see in this are things that we should be resolved to do. And the first thing that we should be resolved to do is in verse 21. Verse 21 says these words. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And so I I think, firstly, we should be resolved to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Now, I I don't know what y'all think about that, but most people think that the, the pastor, the preacher, the minister is supposed to be the one that's to preach the gospel. That's my job. But I would tell you, actually, actually, it's all of our job. Okay, the Bible says that all of us have the responsibility. Every believer, every Christian has responsibility to preach the gospel. Let me explain. 
First, as a frame of reference, what do I mean by gospel? The, the Greek word is euangelion. Okay? It means good news. The word used here is a derivative of euangelion. It's euangelizo, and it means to communicate good news concerning something. So Paul is communicating good news concerning something to all of these people in these cities that he's going to. And uh, the good news that he's conveying to them happens to be about Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do on their behalf. That's what the good news that Paul is talking about here when he says preach the gospel. Tim Keller, a noted uh, author and a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, New York, says some prevalent things about the gospel. I'm going to quickly give you three quick things. The first thing he says is the gospel is not everything. It means, you know, this Bible in its entirety from beginning to end is pointing us to the hope of of God, which we could say is the gospel. But everything in here, the stories, the covenants, the people, all of it singularly by itself isn't necessarily all good. I mean, there's some bad news stuff going on here in the Bible that we can't say it's, it's good news. So the Bible is, the, the gospel is not good advice. It's not everything. It's not good advice. It's good news. What do I mean by that? Every day that you turn your computer on and you pull up the news, oh, you know, the arcade method of breaking out the newspaper, however you get the information that you would get for your day, you're being bombarded with editorials and comments of people that are giving you good news. They're, they're giving you things that you should think about and actually telling you what you should think about them. And it's your choice as to whether you will believe it or not. Um, the weatherman every day gives us good advice. Last Thursday, we were supposed to have rain turning into sleet, and then it was supposed to snow on Friday. What happened? We got, a, we got four inches of snow on Thursday. The weatherman was wrong, Right. So they're giving us good advice, advice that we can take, advice that we can leave if we choose to. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of good news, news that's pertinent to your life that from a biblical perspective, you're expected to act upon. I like to explain it like this. Um, A king has a kingdom and he's gone out to war against other kingdoms and he he gains a great victory. And so to let all of his kingdom know that there's a victory that's been won, he, he gets a man on his horse, a herald, and he takes him with a trumpet. And he goes, he has this, this horse rider go throughout his kingdom and he heralds, he announces the good news that we've won a victory. Now, we would be, if we've won a victory and our country was at war, then We don't have to hide behind our houses. We can take the bars off. We can come out and we can celebrate. We don't have to be ashamed or afraid of the enemy that may come and threaten us anymore. We've gained victory. And that really is what the gospel is. The the gospel is that there's a victory that's been won. The enemy is that the enemy of our souls, Satan, really is ourself, our idolatry, our sin. And the victor is God himself, who's come in the form of Jesus to save us by his death on the cross. That's the first thing. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued or saved. When I was a little kid, I jumped into a 10 feet pool of water. I don't I remember 
snapshots of the incident. My mom has told the story so much that I, I know just from several different venues of, of what happened. But I, I was under five. I didn't know how to swim. And my neighbors were having a party. And I decided I wanted to get in the water. So I jumped in. And uh, my mother uh, explains that she went, like every mother would in that case, frantic, yelling, hollering, my baby's in the water, my baby's in the water. And one of our neighbors with clothes on jumped into the 10-foot pool and, and sort of saved Jeff. And so salvation is this idea we are in some environment that, um, that we can't get out of in and an, in an of our own strength. Imagine you, you not being able to swim in an ocean of water. That's nothing around you. And should someone come with a boat, with a uh, life preserver, or an oar that hands it to you and you grab hold of it, you're, you're going to die a fitful death. And Jesus comes and he saves us from a peril. What is the peril that he saves us from? He saves us from the wrath of God that God promises at the end of this world that's due us because of our rebellion, our sin. That stems all the way back from Adam and Eve in the garden. Thirdly, the, the gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus Christ to put our relationship aright with God. How does he do that? Jesus dies in our place on the cross. The neat, the neat thing about Christianity is we get a whole new identity. Okay, We, we get to all those things that we lean toward and that we chase after that, are, that, that satisfy us, whether it's the food you eat or your sexual life or the money that you work really hard to get or all these goals that you, you clamor to, to make happen in your life. And the Bible says you don't have to chase all that because Jesus does all that for you. He, he satisfies your every need. He changes your identity. You're no longer who, you know, whoever you're striving to be. You're, you're a child of God. You're redeemed. You're righteous. You're his. The gospel is not everything. The gospel is not a simple thing. Tim Keller says, secondly, meaning that we can't give a simple formula that says, you know, raise your hand, say this prayer, walk down the aisle and repeat after me and you're going to be saved. Now, is that is it wrong to to give an altar call, sort of like, so to speak, and and have people respond to a message um, with faith and repentance like that? No, it's not. Uh, any method that we have to, to bring people to the, an, an idea that their sin separates them from God and their trust in Jesus is what restores that relationship is, is appropriate. Any method that helps people understand that is appropriate. But we can't, like fundamentalists, say that you do it this way or you're not in the kingdom of God. Then the Bible is, the Bible prescribes that the gospel is a very complex thing. It involves, it, th- there's elements of the gospel in every single book of the Bible. The, Bible the, the, the gospel talks about our covenant with God. It talks about the, the kingdom of God. It's endless. Thirdly, uh, um, Tim Keller says, the gospel affects everything. And this is probably the most impactful point in this regard, in terms of you preaching the gospel. The gospel affects everything. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but it's the A through Z of the Christian life. It's what saves non-Christians, and it's also what matures all of us um, as we grow as believers. Tim Keller says uh, these poignant words. We are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our lives, our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. And I would tell you, that's what I, I pray for you guys, that we would 
all, not just believe the gospel, we would grow by it. That there's an endless vault of, of, of life that we could live in the gospel and, and that we would dig into it and unpack it and, and put it on, that we wear it and that God would change us by understanding it more. And so preaching the gospel is the announcement of good news. Um, preaching draws people to Jesus. And so when you, through your words, but also through the way that you live your life, um, choose to be a carrier of the message of Jesus, then you draw people to you. But more importantly, churches that don't preach the gospel won't impact the culture. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And if we aren't articulating the gospel from our mouths and through our lives, people out there won't hear it. And they won't come to faith in him. All right. Verse 21 also says, make disciples. Make disciples is the mission of the church. This is what we do. Someone asked me uh, two weeks ago. They said, Jeff, what's your strategy for 2014? And knowing that I was going to preach this passage, I, I said, I said, two, I said four words. Preach the gospel, and make disciples. I said, that's all I'm called to do. That's all I want my church to do. Preach the gospel, make disciples. And that's what Paul is saying that he did as he went from city to city to city um, informing Jews about their Messiah that had come and um, just invading the life of Gentiles who were worshiping other Greek gods, doing whatever they wanted to do, saying, turn from this life because the, uh, those gods can't do anything for you. The God that you're looking for is the only God. and His name is Jesus. Making disciples is the mission of the church. Uh, the word disciple simply means a learner, a pupil, someone that follows. When we uh, are disciples, we're following Jesus. Uh, Jesus modeled this for us. The, the 12 original disciples or apostles, those were Jesus modeled living amongst them, teaching them, uh, teaching them everything in, in regards to how they were to function in relationship to him. And then in Matthew 28, his last words were, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I'll be with you always. He left saying the most important thing I want you to do. Make disciples. OK, there's there's lots of methods to make disciples. Uh, we, we can't rehearse that here. But the most important thing that we will do as a church this year, all year, preach the gospel, make disciples. Now, I'm going to back up. Lest you think that I'm, I'm crazy. Some of you don't want to preach the gospel. I actually don't want you to preach the gospel to people out there. I don't. I want you to first preach the gospel to yourself. Because we have two extremes in our church. We have those who, I, I would ask you right now, we have those who don't know the gospel and know you don't know the gospel. And then we have those who think they know the gospel and don't know the gospel. And I want to bring us all together right here so that we are people who know the, we know Jesus and him crucified. We know what it means for my salvation. but We also know what it means for my ongoing sanctification. And we would, we would just mind the Debs of that so that we would be changed in the presence of God. Um, verse 22 says, gives us another one of these resolutions that I want us to have. Verse 22. Um, I'm going to back up. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, they must enter. We must enter the kingdom of God. And so the second thing that we should be resolved 
to do in 2014 is strengthen the disciples. Uh, actually, that's the third thing. Um, after making disciples, the church needs to strengthen the disciples. And I think this means helping people stand on the gospel, stand on the gospel as the sure foundation of our faith. Um, this reminds me of a language used in Judges in regards to Samson. Samson had been born a Nazarite, had been a judge of Israel, helping them defeat the Philistines. He was deceived. I mean, his, his, his sin was women. Okay, and so he chased women as one that that really he was hung up on Delilah and she got it. She found out his secret. and She told it to the enemy. So one night he's sleeping. She cuts his hair off and he's taken in captivity. And I, we don't know how long he's in captivity. They um, they crush his eyes so he can't see. And then at the end of the story um, in 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 regards to Samson, they bring the, the, the rulers in, uh, of the Philistines bring him out. They're having this grand banquet. All the important people are there. They bring, Sol, um, they bring Samson out as entertainment. And Samson asks the, the guard that's leading him out. He says, prop me up on this pillar. And then he prays this prayer. Lord, strengthen me. Strength, give me strength that, and remember me that I, I might avenge these people who've taken my eyes. And he stretched his arms out on these pillars he knocked down the columns and it says there in the scripture that he killed more people that were assembled in this grand setting, having a party, than he did all the years that he was a judge killing the Philistines for Israel. And I think in very much the same way, these, these words, strengthening the disciples, uh, is, is propping us up, okay? Almost like Samson being propped up against this pillar, God giving him strength to, to you know, avenge the enemy of Israel. Um, Paul is saying the gospel is able to strengthen us up. I think it also means helping people connect everything to the gospel, your relationships, your attitudes, your emotions, your career goals, finding the idols in your own life and reminding yourself that Jesus has come to replace those idols by the gospel. The gospel addresses the greatest needs in your life and it helps you to change them. Um, Paul uses these words also in this verse, encouraging people to continue in their faith. And the reason why he says that is because and he says it here is life gets hard. You ever notice that? That I mean, there's hills and valleys in this life that we live. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, this this smooth sailing of life turns into turmoil and all kinds of of havoc that we have to deal with. Um, He says that we must prepare people to face the difficulties that will arise as they pursue the kingdom of God, because the difficulties will come. We should expect hard things. Paul doesn't say that as you continue in the faith that you're going to have automatic great health or affluence or, um, you know, any matter of, of great success. Those things, while they're blessings of God and we should receive them when God gives it to the gives it to us, they're not expected. They, they, I mean, we can't anticipate those and say, guarantee God is going to going to bless me. I think uh, this is similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I think also it's fair to say we uh, strengthening the disciples doesn't mean that we build bunkers. Uh, we we have we aren't to go on the defensive with our faith, but we are to instead, instead turn outward, send people as missionaries and disciples into the culture and let them see who um, who Jesus is through us. 
Verse 23 gives us another one of our reconciliation, uh, our, um, what's the word? Resolutions. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, this, I mean, I should, I'm talking to a room of leaders right here. I, I know you might not consider yourself that. Some of you are here for the very first time. But Paul is saying that we should be um, resolved to develop and release leaders. And I think every church has to do that in order to have an impact and make a difference in their culture. You know, Paul doesn't unpack this, this statement fully here. He does it in other passages of Scripture, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 2, and, and other places. But in every place that Paul planted a, a New Testament church, this is one of the things he did. He preached the gospel, he made disciples, and then he took from many of them, and he made leaders that were to shepherd the people as that church grew into who God called it to be. And I would tell you, this is what membership really means. Membership is leadership. Ever thought about that? Membership is leadership. When you simply become a member of the transit, what you're doing is, what you're saying is, I am partnering with this church to, um, to, to serve and to use my gifts and as God allows me to, to influence other people who, who I might rub elbows with, that they might do the same thing that I'm doing. And I would encourage all of you to do that. We're going to have a, a membership class at the end of the month. And in that, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking people who will simply be members of our church, but also who will sign up to, to be those who serve and, and be a member that's a leader. Releasing people to lead... Um, if we don't release people to lead, then our church becomes stagnant. We depend on those that you see, the worship leader, the pastor standing up, the person that greets you as you come in, the people back in the children's ministry. Uh, but if we all take the perspective of I'm a part of the leadership of this church, then you're getting to use your gifts. You get, you're being forced to grow. And I would tell you the church grows as well. The last resolution is in these last few verses of, of this, uh, this passage here. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, a lot of cities, huh? And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done, done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. And so the last thing that I think we should be resolved to do is something that I don't think the church does all the time. We don't do it very well. And that's celebrate. Celebrate God's work. A lot of times, I mean, we, we have high points and um, we say, yay, God, and then we go right on. Just forgetting that God wants us to enjoy him, but also enjoy the, his grace that he's giving us as, as we're building. You know, this, this passage here, these last four uh, verses really are summarizing all that Paul and Barnabas did as they were traveling on their first missionary journey. And I've said it a couple times. They came to a city. They preached the gospel. They made disciples. They uh, found some people who were willing to partner with them in the gospel. They appointed some as as leaders. OK, he mostly calls them pastors or elders. And 
they helped that church to mature. And then Paul would um, oversee these churches through letters like this. And occasionally he would visit them um, in his in his secondary travels. And even as I read this, I recount, you know, our our journey a year and a half ago, leaving all that we knew in North Carolina and coming up here. And I look out at all you people here, some of you who were in our core group, but half of you actually 70 percent of you who weren't. And I I thank God. I thank God for just the grace that he's giving us all ready to preach the gospel, make disciples. And that's really what we're supposed to be doing here. Verse 28 reminds us that we have to linger in a celebration. That means um, we have the opportunity to see God through us do great work. And what we're supposed to do is 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 revel in that. Revel in that. Just enjoy the grace of God that he gives us to partner with him in this great work. You know, a failure to celebrate and attribute the success to God for how he builds our church is a worship issue. And so we want to make sure that God gets the acclaim and the fame that he deserves for all the things that goes on in our lives and in this church as as he builds it. I'll conclude with this. So let's be resolved in 2014 as as transit church. These aren't the only things that we should be resolved to do. All right. So don't think that Jeff. Well, Jeff said we only have um, what was it? Four or five things. Five, five resolutions. He don't want to do is we don't do anything else. We're going to preach the preach the gospel. um, You know, all that stuff. You know, you got to do more, right? You got to read your Bible. Okay, you have to uh, you should pray Um, along with praying. You should you should fast. We should be doing community. One another's of scripture. Uh, There's many things that we should be doing to in our worship of God and to, uh, you know, to, to make the community of faith work. So I'm not saying don't do those things, but I am saying if we don't do these things, then we will have missed um, God's instruction for us as a church as a, as a church plant in terms of how to make an impact on this place that God has put us in. If we don't preach the gospel, then we don't have the power um, to, to grow. Okay? That, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. If we, don't, if we don't make disciples, we don't have the people who are mature enough to, to turn outward and go and infiltrate um, our city and our culture. If we don't release leaders, then we become bottleneck and only a few get to get to share in the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to actually build the thing along with God. And then if we don't celebrate, then we are worshiping ourselves and not the God who enables us to do this. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, make us people who are resolved in this coming year. Resolve that we will be people of your word. Resolve that we will be people who are steadfast in prayer, who are people who uh, adhere to what Scripture says about coming together. Lord God, who are adamant to love and defend your gospel. But more importantly, Lord God, we pray that you would help us, as Paul has outlined his pattern in these few cities that he visited. He went and preached the gospel. God put the the message of the gospel on our lips, but more than on our lips, 
put it in our mind, give us the knowledge of it, and then let it infiltrate to our hearts. God, we want to be people who, who understand and know the gospel, not just for salvation, but how it would change us. God, help us to be satisfied in Jesus. And God, help the gospel to be really good news. When we hear those words, Lord God, make it such that our, our, our eyes brighten up, our attitude changes, and we understand really the, the good news that's come to us, people who really need good news. God, I pray that you'd help us to be resolved to not just be disciples, but to make disciples. God, would you make us resolve to be leaders here, all of us, members partnering in the gospel of God, using our gifts to serve and to give. And Lord, I pray that we would celebrate, that we would see the work around us, that we would attribute it to you and you alone, and that we would glory, we would revel in all that you're doing. And I pray that as we get to 2014, the end of it, that we would look back and say, look what God has done. Look what God has done. And for that, we give you praise. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. And amen.